0: All right, um, let's get started hey everyone uh, welcome to Alpha one out Twitter space session in which today's session we'll be talking about um, building web 3 projects from an Asia perspective and today we also have a special guest right here with us today. Uh, please welcome Jason Choi
1: hey guys
2: thanks for having me on
0: Hey it's been an honor to, to finally talk
2: to you Jason. I'm a big
0: fan of your work.
1: Yeah, thank
2: you. Uh, likewise, here, uh, obviously I've known Alpha for a while um, and excited to be on here.
0: Great, that's nice. Okay, um, just before we get started, um, in case somebody here doesn't know who you are yet, um, Jason, could do you mind um, giving an, a little introduction about yourself, uh, who you are and why are you in the crypto industry?
2: Yeah, sure. So I first came into the space back in 2018 uh, Whereas a full-time investor with a fund out in Asia uh, called Spartan Capital, uh, we're one of the first institutional crypto funds uh, in Asia. Uh, we started as a long-short uh, crypto hedge fund, and then we eventually expanded to venture investing as well. Uh, first, starting with DeFi, and then uh, recently into um, gaming and NFT. Um, and on the side, I've also been hosting a podcast called uh, Block Crunch, uh, which every week I interview a founder or investor in the space uh, every week for the past four years, actually. And we're actually on the verge of launching something new uh, called Block Crunch VIP, which is a more kind of in depth uh, research um, platform where we'll send uh, research memos, research briefs, and investment memos to our subscribers every single week on any project that we bring up.
0: Cool. Um, thanks for that. Now let's um dig deeper into our topics for today. So let's start with Asia. So Jason, how has Asia crypto landscape changed over the past one year?
2: Yeah, I think um I guess one year is, is a kind of oddly specific time frame, but I guess zooming out a little bit, um in the very beginning, I think a lot of innovation um, was coming out from China in terms of the. Uh, in terms of the ICO days, right? So there's a lot of um, highly technical people coming up from China. But ever since um, the kind of curbing of crypto, uh, I guess about a year ago, um, and the complete shutdown of mining in China as well, a lot of that talent has actually moved to um, other parts of uh, Asia, uh, particularly in Singapore. We started to see a lot of um, you know Chinese origin founders moving to Singapore as well. So I think the talent is still here, but it's more of a diaspora now, kind of spreading across Asia. Um, in terms of development-wise, uh, given that gaming is a large part of Asian culture as well, especially in countries like Korea, uh, we started to see a revival in, um, in, in, in terms of deal flow uh, from Asia as well. We started to see a lot of play-to-earn games uh, picking up in Asia, and obviously the flagship uh, play-to-earn game Axie Infinity took off in in Southeast Asia as well. Um, so I do think a lot of the users, as well as developers, uh, continue to come from Asia. So we're, we're watching the space uh, you know, with great interest.
0: Yeah, um, since you mentioned about Axie Infinity, well, with, with the rise of the project, right, um, do you see projects in the metaverse of GameFi coming from Asia more than other parts of the world?
2: Um, I wouldn't, uh, it's a bit hard to say. I'd say probably um, 50-50 now. I'd say the general bar of quality uh, for kind of Western gaming studios uh, still seems to be generally higher than the average um, game developer in Asia. I think that's just by pure virtue of how many game developers there are in Asia. Um, so, so the quality is tends to be a little bit um, kind of more diverse. Uh, whereas a lot of the you know, game developers we speak to uh, from the West, uh, you know, came from studios that you, know, you might have heard of before, you know, studios like Blizzard and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit hard to kind of make that comparison, but I, I'd, I'd say probably
0: fifty fifty now. Right, I see. Now, um, let me ask you more about the investment part. So gaming projects uh, require unique skills in creating games that people enjoy playing, right? But what do you look for in terms of team background?
2: In terms of uh, any games?
0: Yeah, um, um, like the team background for, for founders for gaming projects.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting is there's kind of two big groups of founders we see building play to earn games. Um, one is typically people who have built kind of AAA titles before or used to be part of studios that uh, shipped out these AAA titles completely outside of crypto. And are now bringing that skill set into crypto to build kind of AAA uh, titles and with crypto economic elements. And then they are very kind of crypto native founders who um, are building almost a community and economy first and then creating the gameplay second. Um, so I think a, a few kind of really exciting examples there, one of which is Alluvium. Obviously, the founder, Kieran, um, has been in crypto for a while. His brother is actually Kane, uh, who, who started Synthetix, one of the OG projects in DeFi as well and they bootstrap a community and then start to develop a game afterwards. And then we see, you know, uh, projects like Loot as well, as well as Treasure Dow, which are a lot more on the crypto-native side, you know, bootstrapping the community and economy first before starting the game. Um, yeah, so in terms of what we look for in terms of teams, um, I think we're pretty open to both types of teams. Um, you know, I, I know, you know it's usually a little bit easier to get on board with um, you know, people who come from the AAA background, just because it's easier to kind of grasp the concept of a game with crypto elements versus thinking from first principles, and then um, you know, imagining a game coming out from a community, imagining uh, a game coming out from an economy. Uh, but we're we're equally open to both.
0: Mm, I see. Gotcha. Now, um, since you mentioned about how game developers um game five developers uh, can can rise up from uh, across the globe right but what do you see as a unique opportunities for web3 builders or game five builders in asia that has a you know special perks than other builders from across the world
2: yeah i think there's a few points there so if you look at the the rise of axie um obviously it's bootstrapped in southeast asia And I think a lot of the reason was, um, so uh, COVID was like a huge reason of it. Um, It really affected the livelihoods of a lot of people um, and X-Infinity basically created another way for people to earn while at home. Um, So I think in um, kind of lower kind of socioeconomic, um, lower kind of income brackets in Southeast Asia, um, there is, I I guess, more um, receptiveness towards play to earn games. Um, And then we started to see, I guess, games that, don't really look like games that most people are used to, right? Things like Step In, uh, which is more of a move to earn, almost like a fitness gamified type of fitness um, 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 game, and we really start to see it kind of take off in, in in China and in Asia as well. So I think it's maybe potentially cultural. Maybe there's a cultural element where um, there is a larger kind of gaming culture in Asia. But again, it's it's very very hard to kind of generalize just because of how. Um, you know, diverse and, and large Asia is, um, I, I guess another point is, you know, uh, I think esports culture is also massive in Asia. If you look at economies like uh, Korea. Um, so I do think that uh, in terms of like bootstrapping your initial user base, there is, um, there's a lot of value in, um, you know, taking a look at Asia, but I, I am, I always caution founders against kind of having an Asia strategy. I don't think it makes much sense to have like an Asia strategy it makes more sense to have a very, very localized strategy. But if you, if, you, if you look outside of gaming, if you look at like how exchanges scale, the, none, none of the exchanges that are successful have like an Asia strategy, right? They always have a China strategy or a Korea strategy. And you need this because Asia is a very diverse space, as you know. Um, so I guess that's just a long way of saying that um, there's a lot of pockets of opportunity within Asia, but I would not bucket it into kind of one, uh, one strategy if you're a founder listening and you're trying to scale a game.
0: Basically, it's better to localize rather than, you know, to to be in an overview overview marketing strategies, right? Like to target different countries. Are you saying like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Um, so next question is that um, what are the tips for founders in Asia in terms of fundraising?
2: Yeah, so that is a great question because... Um, a lot of the institutional capital in crypto, if you look at sheer uh, amount of dollars, a lot of that still resides in the West um, As might might be because the venture um, capital ecosystem did originate uh, in the U S and there's a lot more pension funds that are more familiar uh, with, with um, I guess the a venture type of investment and there's a lot more capital ready to, to be deployed into these uh, institutions that are, Investing in crypto with a venture mandate as well. So there's a lot more capital out in the West um, and but I would not kind of underestimate uh, funds that are operating in Asia as well. I think in general, if I were to kind of really, really generalize, um, I think Asia funds tend to be a bit smaller um, in size and maybe maybe that translates into fewer portfolio companies and maybe that translates into uh, more ability to be hands on with founders. Um, But at the same time, you know, if you look at uh, Western funds, a lot of them have attained a a very, very respectable size, which allows them to, you know, keep resources and retainers, right? For instance, keeping like auditors and retainers or having their in-house engineering team, which um, not many, many Asia funds are capable of. Um, uh, There are a few notable exceptions, but not many of them. um, It's definitely not the norm. So, you know, for, for founders in Asia who are trying to raise for a crypto project, um, I wouldn't raise with a localized strategy, right? I wouldn't try to raise from just Asia funds or just Western funds. I wouldn't even, um, I wouldn't even think of your cap table from that uh, ge- geographical lens. I would think more about you know what specific help you need and what specific value add you're looking for, right? If you're looking for an institutional brand name that's globally recognized, it makes it easier for you to hire maybe web two engineers. They may be raising from some historic funds in the West. Um, that has you know, wider global brand appeal might make sense. If you're looking for, um, you know, funds with maybe looser mandates that can provide liquidity uh, early on without needing to kind of run it through 15 different legal checks, maybe some of the Asia kind of prop-based funds might make more sense to you. Um, so think less from a geographical lens; think more from you know your strategic needs as a as a project.
0: Thank you for that, Jason. Now. Um... Since you have been an investor for quite a while now, so what are the things that you often find founders need help with? Or like what are the common pitfalls for founders you've seen?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's another incredible question. Um, yeah, so it really depends on the stage of the project. So let, let, let's go to the earliest stage of the project, right? So say you're a founder, you're just starting out a project, and uh, you know what are, what are some common pitfalls? I think one thing that is very specific to this moment in time is over-raising because there's so much capital raised by funds in crypto. Um, and um, it's I think a lot of the funds are are very willing to kind of pay up for prices. It is tempting for, especially first-time founders, to raise at as high a valuation as they possibly can, um, especially because a lot of the funds have to pay up because they need to deploy in size. So what they end up doing is giving away too much of the company at too early um, of a stage. And it doesn't just impede their own kind of economic upside; it also curtails the ability to um, attract uh, employees down the line, right? Because if you're, you know, raising at a two hundred million dollar valuation out the gate without a product, then your perceived upside for, you know, talented engineers you're trying to hire is probably much lower than a company that's probably raising a modest, like ten million type of valuation. Um, so, very, um, just because you can. Um, don't try to raise as much as possible. Just raise what you need to get a product going. Um, that, that's kind of pitfall and watch out for number one. Um, number two, I guess, is also kind of selecting your investors based on what stage they're at. Um, I think I in think crypto, the, the stages between funds is a little bit more blurry just because, uh, you know, liquid markets, the times of liquidity for assets, we're talking about months instead of years, uh, unlike traditional uh, startup equity. So a lot of funds tend to invest in both liquid markets, growth stage and also seed stage and also pre-seed stage. Um, so when you're building your cap table, I definitely recommend kind of being very specific about what stage you want to raise from um, and, and kind of what type of funds you want to raise from. So I, I guess that's kind of watch out for number two. Um, yeah, I think th- those, I, I can go on and on, but uh, let's leave it at those two for now. Oh,
0: that's a uh, pretty... Intense and insightful answers from you, Jason. Thank you. Now, um, speaking about funding, uh, let me talk about the hackathon event that we are hosting right now with Terra. So, Alpha Venture is partnering with Terra Hash and Coin88 and many more protocols from the Terra blockchain to create the most Terra and Asia-focused hackathon. Which um, this hackathon is special and unique, unlike other hackathon events where winners or projects uh, that participate in this event may get a chance to be incubated under the Alpha Incubate program and also get the seed fund from Terraform Labs as well. So just to you know, give more information to the audience here who may also be the participants for this hackathon event. So Jason, um, what aspect do you think is the most important to have when building a crypto project? Or uh, you know to go from zero to one.
2: Um, uh, sorry, can you repeat that last part again?
0: Yeah, like like what what aspects do you think is the most important, you know, to go from zero to one when building a crypto project?
2: Yeah, so I think it's not as different from building a company. Um, you know, there's probably like four or five things that that you can generalize across all crypto projects. Uh, number one is, you know, obviously product market fit. I think I, I wrote a blog post about this um, a few months ago, uh, basically about how not to build BS products in crypto. And what I noticed was that a lot of um, a lot of crypto products are very hacky uh, in the sense that people just kind of, you know, put together things that seem cool and they put it out there. And then, you know, they slap on some incentives and then suddenly there's hundreds of millions of dollars of TVL and they kind of mistake that for product market fit. And, you know, for some of them it works, right? So uh, especially at DeFi, um, a lot of the things products are really just DGENs building for DGENs. So they have an intuitive sense of what other DGENs need. So there's not a lot of validation needed. There's not a lot of market research needed um, They kind of put a product out and there's instant product market fit. I think that's increasingly harder because the lowest hanging fruits have already all been built out. So again, taking a look at DeFi as an example, if you look at things like Aave, Compound, Uniswap, um, basically lending and I think, uh, you know, spot trading, That's pretty much, I think, the chessboard, right? Um, There's a lot more projects that are building marginal improvements on top of these products, but for the most part, those lower-hanging fruit use cases, those primitives are built out. So people now have to go further up the stack and think about what do people actually want to use uh, besides just kind of primitives. So that requires a bit more discipline in terms of finding product market fit. So, um, you know, one exercise that we like to do with founders is just Uh, making sure that they do as many customer interviews as possible uh, in, in, in the early days to kind of validate the market assumptions. Right. Um, A lot of times uh, founders will have this kind of spark of inspiration and they have this idea for a product and they think everybody's going to love this. And then after they talk to, um, you know, maybe just five or 10 potential users, they realize, wow, they're completely uh, not getting the pain point that these guys have, you know, no one cares about this product as much as they do. Um, That's the type of really simple exercise that, um, I think can be generalized across all types of startups in crypto that, that founders can definitely do more of um, the caveat to that is a lot of the things in crypto are also very zero to one type of stuff. Um, so there's not, I think by definition, because it's disruptive, there's not a lot of market research you can actually do, right? The market data is not going to tell you anything. Uh, for instance, if you look at, um, you know, CryptoKitties back in 2017, um, it would not have a, uh, you know, you would not have been able to project the rise of Axie Infinity from just looking at at, at CryptoKitties. So I'd also caution against kind of over-indexing on on market data. Um, so that's kind of part one, part of market fit. And then I guess the other part that can generalize is also distribution. So once you have the product, how do you get it into the hands of as many uh, as many people as possible? So a, a lot of founders that I speak with have this misconception that. Um, because there's a lot of CT personalities that are really famous and they get a lot of followers. They think that that's the thing that they have to do, right? They have to become influencers. They got to tweet a lot, write a lot of threads and and show their products. Um, But that's almost always a kind of tertiary goal, right? That 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 comes almost like third in priority. It's nice to have to have a social media platform, but um, that is usually just one arm of your strategy. So as a crypto startup, you really got to think about who your target audience is. Are you a a kind of end-user, kind of consumer-facing application? Are you maybe a B2B application and your clients are DAOs or or guilds, right? If if that's the case, do you really need to go on a very retail-heavy platform like Twitter? Um, So really think about who your target um, users are and then build your pipelines from there. Um, But yeah, those are just kind of two very um, generalizable type of um, things that people should watch out for.
0: Mm, I see. Well, actually, I'm, I'm quite curious on the, on the uh, market research. Do you have any tools or studies that uh, you can recommend for us to do in order to, you know, to find like, the, the most accurate um, data and validate our assumptions?
2: Yeah, so I'm a personal investor in Dune Analytics. Um, you know, I think it's the most versatile data tool out there. You can basically um, parse data from any application that's live today and take a look at kind of live tractions, right? And if you don't know SQL, there's a lot of dashboards already built there. So for instance, if you want to look at uh, Looks rare trading volume, you want to see if people actually want to trade on Looks rare. there's a dashboard built by uh, a friend of mine, Quirky Quirty, uh and it's, it's live on Dune right now. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend, you know, people digging into actual data and looking at, um, you know, wh- where users are actually going. Uh, but, but then again, um, because by definition, a lot of these crypto applications are disruptive. You really can't rely too much on past data. Um, so it's it's more about it's less about kind of what tools to use and more about just thinking from first principles. Um, I, th- I think a great example of that is kind of the Solana thesis, right? Um, I, I don't think there was any data that would have you know, painted a Solana thesis very, very um, clearly. Um, the only thesis there was to kind of think from first principles, right? So. If, uh, you know, if gas prices are high in Ethereum, are the general retails who maybe have a less, have a lower sensitivity towards decentralization and uh, w- would they really want to, uh, you know, pay, pay high gases to keep on using Ethereum or would they be okay with using a, a kind of uh, you know, faster layer one chain? And if there is a faster layer one chain, um, you know, how do we think about uh, composability? do we want a monolithic chain where it's easy for applications to talk to each other, or do we want maybe a shorter chain where it might be harder? Um, so, um, so I, I guess if you kind of follow that logical trail, you kind of arrive at, Hey, Solana seems like a pretty good bet. And I think that that's precisely the thesis that, uh, you know, some funds had. And I think, uh, multi Coin capital, they put out a, a really great blog post way, way, way back about Solana, which kind of painted this thesis from a first principles perspective and they didn't cite any data because there wasn't any. So, Um, That's just a long-winded way of saying that um, just because there is data doesn't mean you should kind of rely too hard on it as well.
0: Right. Thank you for that, Jason. Now, you know, since this hackathon event only um, expands through the time span of two months, so every team will not be able to deliver all the requirements for their project. So, Jason, can you list? Uh, the one thing every project must have in that initial phase that investors look
2: for? Yeah, I think um, one thing that I don't hear a lot of people talk about is founder uh, market fit. We always hear about kind of product market fit, um, but we rarely hear about founder market fit, um, which is whether this founder is really right for this specific market. I think that's particularly important if we do enter, you know, a prolonged bear market again, um, the most important question for investors is is this founder going to stick with the project and continue building or are they going to just go check out and you know maybe race for another project or whatever so finding out the personal motivations of the founder and seeing why they're building is probably more important than learning about what they're building at times so in a lot of my calls with founders for instance i like to spend a large part of it kind of digging into the personal motivations as well um and this is something that i picked up from uh Reading a book written by uh, Jason Calacanis, who's um, one of the more prolific angel investors in Silicon Valley, and he spent a lot of his time in his kind of sixty-minute calls with founders, where he digs into personal motivations for the founders. Um, that's something that I found to be um, very a, a very high signal thing. Um, even though it's a little wishy-washy, it's not very quantitative. Um, usually, it's very hard to fake enthusiasm and very hard to fake um, you know personal motivation for building in a specific it's building a product in a specific vertical. So, yeah, I'd say kind of founder founder market fit is probably the single most important thing that, that I look for if I can only look at one thing.
0: So not only know the product, but you have to know the person as well.
2: Yeah, and more importantly, know whether the person is right for the market.
0: Mm, gotcha. Well, another question for you. Um, so looking from the perspective from the Asian market, so in order to to capture this group of users from asia is marketing the most important aspect or what do you think is the most important to capture the asian market
2: yeah again i think the, the asian market term is way too broad to to have mm-hmm. any meaningful answer here but you know if i were a project um it, it really depends on the, on the type of the project as well uh, so let, let's say you're a game for example you're trying to break into the quote-unquote asian market the first step is really to segment it into where do you think your biggest opportunities are, right? Because the Chinese market is very, very different from the Korean market. So localize what markets you wanna target. And then um, I guess going back to that point about setting up a distribution channels, really think about who your target um, target users are, right? So uh, in the example of um, you know, Xe Infinity, you should think about um, what is the demographic for your users? Are they kind of uh, lower income kind of uh, mobile users? Or are they kind of desktop users, uh, higher income? and so on. So kind of segment your users from there after you've kind of located the market and then just kind of grow more and more granular from there. Um, I think that that's the only kind of very generalizable piece of advice that I have. But again, it, it, it is not something that I think, um, you know, it, it's really a case by case kind of thing.
0: Right, thank you for that, Jason. Here, um, I have a last question for you uh, related to the hackathon event. So since you have been an angel investors for multiple crypto projects, right? So what are the common pitfalls for projects that fail to deliver what they promise?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, so I was reading um, the annual investor letter written by Jamatha Ebatia from Social Capital uh, earlier this morning. And one thing he mentioned, um, with kind of uh, greatest of all time founders is what he called them, like goat founders, is the ability to just focus um, on on one kind of uh, on on one mission. So uh, I guess the really controversial example that he alluded to on one of his podcasts is uh, the example of kind of Bar- Brian Armstrong writing that uh, blog post about how Coinbase is a mission driven company, and you know everything outside of the mission to onboard more crypto users should not be part of you know should, should, should not be part of um, your, your work hours right so if you're political uh, if there's like political views that employees want to support uh, he's you know open for them to support but just not during work hours because that's not what he's pay- paying his employees for and that ended up being a very very controversial opinion right there was a lot of backlash from the entire I guess tech community about that um, but uh, I think the point that Tremath made is that over time, people will prove that uh, to run successful companies, that's the type of mentality you need to have, which is to just be kind of ruthlessly uh, focused on one, um, on, on kind of one mission. And I guess bringing it to a, a kind of more personal level, when I look at my own angel investments, I think companies that fail to deliver are usually are founders that are just completely distracted. So uh, there are founders that are maybe full time running actually another venture with external investors as well. Um, kind of like moonlighting as both the founder of this product and both Bo the founder of this another thing. Um, so that never, ever works well. So um, usually uh, I think kind of full commitment to a thing that you raise money for is probably the bare minimum. Um, and then there's also the kind of smaller example of um, founders that just kind of chase the next shiniest thing just to keep their project relevant, right? So for instance, um, you know, I think it, during the NFT hype, I think a lot of the DeFi projects started to kind of language a little bit in terms of in terms of usage so it, it, I always get kind of uh, you know calls from founders asking hey should we pivot over to maybe an NFT project should we kind of try to tackle this problem um, and I, I guess my, 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 my advice often is to not do it unless there's a very clear um, clear your thesis as to why it fits into your mission um, because it, it is it is very easy to kind of chase the next shiniest thing but you know in the next six 12 months um, you know, the Chinese thing might not be NFTs; it might be something else. So, if you constantly, as a founder, if you're all, always kind of grasping towards uh, your next distraction, it's very hard to kind of execute. So, I guess on the flip side of that, the most successful founders um, that I've angel invested in are just relentlessly focused on building uh, kind of great products. Um, so, um, I guess not not to kind of use the Dune Analytics examples too much, but uh, you probably noticed that Dune Analytics team has basically shipped the same product. Um, there's not a lot of kind of you know distractions. They're not shipping like their own exchange and so on. They're just continu continuously kind of um, you know expanding to different chains um, and offering the same kind of value they did on Ethereum. So I think that that's a very simple example of, of what it means to have kind of great focus as a founder. Um, and there's a few other examples as well, but probably too many to list out here.
0: Well, thank thank you for that, Jason. Um, your answers are pretty insightful, and I'm pretty sure many of us here tonight or, t- or morning, uh, yeah learn a lot uh, from you today. But um, yeah, before we close down this uh, session, I'm going to open the floor to everybody here in case somebody have some questions for you or about the hackathon event. So feel free to request to speak and um, yeah, if you have any questions. So the first question is from Lucas, You are.
1: Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm asking about uh, Central Asia now. uh, The protocols and Web3 is very popular in Kazakhstan. And uh, how is your project in their countries?
2: I'm sorry, I didn't fully catch that last part.
1: I mean, um, I heard about TT protocol, it's very perspective project, Alpha protocol, I am very, love these uh, protocols. Uh, i asking about uh, Central Asia, about uh, Kazakhstan, uh, are you doing their work, what about their, Kazakhstan, Central Asia, you know about it?
2: Uh, I don't think I am uh, familiar with that particular project you're speaking about in Kazakhstan. Um, I don't know if, uh, if, um, if anyone else caught that, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm still kind of struggling to understand the question here.
0: Um, yeah. Um, so the second question is from the businessman.
3: You may speak now. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, I believe Lucas may have been asking about um, any developments that you've noticed or you know of happening in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, that general area. Lucas? Y- yes, yes. There you go. No problem, buddy. So I, I, I'll... I'll myself on mute for a second if it happens to be an answer. Got it. Got it.
2: Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, Yeah, I think there was probably something going on with the connectivity. Um, Personally, no, I haven't. Um, But I definitely would love to. I think that's a little bit of a spot, a blind spot of myself as well. But definitely would love to. uh, Would love to kind of learn more there. So maybe we can connect offline, Lucas, um, to to chat more about
3: that. So I didn't have a question as much as uh, really just a statement. You you couldn't find a better person than Jason to have this conversation with. So, you know, good on you, Alpha. Um, just to to add to the aspect of um of the right founder and how it's more difficult to find a good project now with all you know, how many staking pools do we really need anymore? You know, all all the low hanging fruit is is gone as Jason said. I can't stress enough, even when you're targeting a specific market, I can never stress enough having a diversified team, especially when you really need to think more outside the box to get that next project. Not having, you know, in America's case, you know, just a bunch of white bros doing it together you know getting diversification on your team i think is absolute gold and what the thoughts and the brainstorming that comes out of that is is priceless and that's it i wish everyone the best of luck in hackathon
0: thank you for that Now, while we're waiting for the next question from the audience, um, we have opened the Gather Town portal right now. So, if you're participating in the hackathon event, feel free to jump into the Gather Town to, you know, meet other teammates, find team, find your find members for your team, and also, you know, share your ideas as well. Now, the third question is from Susan. And we'll have one last question from M. Uh, Uh, Yeah, you can start. Okay, thank you. Uh,
2: My my question is that uh, I want to ask Jason, uh, what do you think about uh, projects in China? that due to that uh, uh, political issue that is vague and, and that it's not clear about the whole crypto uh, thing. What do you think about uh, these projects in China and uh, should they uh, go out of China to keep, keep, their, uh, keep going on their career? Or what, do you have any better plan for this kind of uh, situation? Yeah, so um, I don't have a best kind of advice or suggestion for founders in crypto uh, who are in China. I can, I can speak to what I've seen so far, which is I think a lot of um, uh, great founders with, for instance, uh, we were just speaking with a few um, kind of academics from uh, respectable Chinese institutions um, that relocated actually to uh, other parts of Asia, right? So, so either Singapore or or the us for uh to to continue pursuing crypto but i guess the um the wider point is that i don't think there is a single jurisdiction that is very very clearly pro crypto there are some that's are friendlier towards crypto than others uh you know i've heard great things about places like lisbon seems like uh some founders are uh quite opening up to the idea of dubai as well but um you know, I, I, I think just from personal experience speaking with different founders uh, from China and actually from, from India as well, um, because regulation around crypto is uh, more stringent in those areas, um, the founders are almost prepared to just live nomadically um, and kind of um, almost play a regulatory hopscotch on, uh, the, the, the same way that, uh, say, Binance did back when they first started until there is more clear regulation. So for now, it's still, um, you know, I, I think it's still quite unclear as to whether China will fully, fully open up to, uh, to crypto. Um, but I guess from the curbing of the mining in the recent years, um, it does seem like they're uh, definitely leaning towards a more cautious and, and kind of heavy regulation side for now. Okay, thank you.
0: So just one more last question for Jason. Feel free to request to speak. And the last question is from Mountain Hill. Hello.
2: Hello. Hi,
0: Jason. Thank you for sharing with us your vision for the building of Web3 projects. And uh, I was wondering, um, now the, the Luna blockchain is is, is holding the hack on with uh our finance and uh you uh, know that the uh, Tron is going to launch a, a stable coin called USDD and uh, Near Protocol or Near Foundation is going to launch a stable coin called USN. So uh, how will uh, Luna don't you know compete with uh, both the Tron and the uh, uh, Near Protocol? I was uh, very interesting hearing from you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I saw the news as well. Um, I, I thought it was quite funny. I think Tron promised, uh, I think like 30% yield uh, to, to kind of compete with the anchor 20% yield. Um, so I think it's important to remember a lot of yields are still subsidized by uh, the reserve. So obviously there, is, um, th- th- there there is a finite lifespan as to how long yields at this level can sustain mm-hmm. um so um i wouldn't presume to know how the competition will, will play out but i do foresee that um you know i i don't think it makes much sense for there to be so many different usd denominated stable coins across different chains mm-hmm. i do think that we'll probably converge towards one or two standards maybe it's ust across multiple chains and then usdc maybe usdt um but i i do think the current fragmentation with like maybe two dozen different types of USD um, uh, stable coins across different chains in different protocols. I don't think that makes much sense because it fragments liquidity. Um, I do think it will have some sort of a parallel where you, you already kind of see it, right? With USDT and USDC, um, where the largest two or three command most of the market cap. I think that would be the same case for um, these kind of, um, uh, I, I guess these kind of uh, USD clones across different chains as well. There, I, I don't foresee that, you know, there's going to be, you know, Five
1: or ten of these things. Okay, thank you so much for that.
2: All right,
0: that's it for today's session. Um, yeah, feel free to check out our pin post on our account to register for the hackathon event and also join the Gather Town to find other teammates and Cherry ID as well. Hey, Jason, thank you for joining the session today. It has been a very insightful session.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.